you're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 21 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Friday, November 27th. My name is Harry Knight and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Asher King. Hello, Webland. How have you guys been? I am. I have been very ill, and so if I'm a bit quiet through the episode, I apologise. You are looking less than your usual a little happy ragged. self. I might de- descend into a fit of coughing at any moment. Then. <laughs> we'll try to save you. <laughs> um, how have you been, Asher? What have you been up to? Oh, not too much. Kind of settled back into the season down in Costa Rica, and uh, yeah, I finally have a good quiver of surfboards down here. It was pretty hard to uh, to assemble a pretty good, well-rounded quiver, and it's taken me a year, but I feel like I finally kind of achieved the all-arounder i need to thank you actually for bringing the uh, puka's g-spot over from my mum's house in england and bringing it back when you came back from europe oh do you like it i've been really enjoying surfing that board so it's the it's a 510 which is kind of like my usual go-to shortboard length but it's it's, a, it's quite chunky yeah it's got a little bit more volume in it um but it, it it's managed to stay a little bit wider so i can it paddles like really really nicely but it's also really solid so i've surfed it on some big overhead barreling days and it really grips the face nicely so you feel super confident on it yeah that's um that's my favorite thing about that board is the the really deep single concave throughout the nose to kind of the midsection of the board and i think that's what keeps it really grippy on the bigger days i took it out on a couple booming days in france this year and just had a ball yeah, I'm quite pleased you didn't break it, actually. Yeah, and I I was pretty sure I did on a couple of ways. I was like, this is going to be tough to explain to Rue. Oh, Rue, sorry about it, but uh, I, I snapped the lender. And you've, you've been surfing your Bonza quite a lot. Oh, it's the only board I've ridden since the last time we recorded. I've been having a ball on it. So I'm really interested to know, has it... Do you find that surfing that and, and, and the way that you have to surf it, has it sort of changed the way that you're thinking about riding your shortboard? So, good question. Uh, kind of one of the classic mistakes I've found uh, when coaching at Surf Simply is a lot of uh, intermediate to progressing into advanced surfers make the air of pumping a little bit too much on the wave, meaning just the, the quick uh, kind of compressions and decompressions on the wave face to get up speed. And they spend a lot of the wave doing that instead of utilizing the sections. And a bonzer, you just can't surf like that at all. It needs to be kept on rail. So it's been translating really, really well for me. When I get off the kind of larger 6'2 bonzer onto my shortboard, I felt like I've been having a couple of really good sessions out there. It's funny how often when you're coaching people, you're trying to get someone to do something. And it's almost as soon as they've mastered it, you have to be like, okay, and now you can do it. Stop doing it. Like, for example, when you're trying to get people to angle their takeoff and mm-hmm. just draw a nice, straight, fast line across the wave face. And, you know, that, that's, the, that's a lot of work, getting people to predict how much and when to angle and put themselves in the right place and how much weight to put on the rail. And as soon as they can do it, you're like, okay, now we're going to stop doing that and we're going to go into doing big, deep bottom turns. And, and kind of pumping's the same because we spend a lot of time teaching people how to pump. And like you say, I, I've, you know, as soon as people can pump, they start using it as just their default go-to maneuver mm-hmm. as soon as they're up and on their feet. And, and of course, ultimately, what we're trying to do is constantly be turning the board so that the, the most critical part of the wave is hitting the bottom of the board and creating speed that way. Mm-hmm. Pumping is really what we would only want to do if you're not doing that. Yeah. I don't know, do you guys remember, this is a random thing you probably won't remember, but Geordie Smith had a wave at Bell's Beach, not this year, but last year. I think it was in a heat against Julian Wilson. And he managed to do this bottom-to-top combo on his oh, backhand. Oh, yeah, the most beautiful 
bottom to top ever that I've ever seen in competition. It was and it came amazing. in really, really close to a 10, but not quite. Yeah, let's try and dig it out and stick it in the show notes because I think it's the best example of using of creating speed by turning rather than by pumping that I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, well, should we just... Harry's like frowning at the idea of trawling through hours oh. of YouTube oh. to try I, and find one turn. I'll tell you what, if you boys find it, I will post it. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been up to, Harry? Um, I've been having a lot of fun trying to work out how to fly the drone that we've bought. Well, actually, not how to fly it, because the funny thing is it, it flies itself. It's the most ridiculously easy thing to fly the world has ever known. It's the, but what's fun is then trying to work out, okay, the surfer's going to take off there. They're going to do this. Where do I need to put the drone? Which way do I need to turn it? And Because you, you, you're operating it completely in three dimensions because you, you've got to be moving the drone left and right, but also flat rotating it, and then also controlling the camera gimbal as to whether it's looking horizontal or vertical or anywhere in between. And you've got to operate all three controls so that the surfer just smoothly goes past the, the drone or you track the surfer or whatever. And I'm, I've gotten a couple of good clips, but I've really messed up a couple as well. <laughs> so anyone who's been following our various social media presences will have noticed an abundance of drone footage and photographs suddenly uh, that we're putting out. We've got a new toy. We've got a new toy, yeah. Yeah. Actually, Kai messaged me today and he just said, I love the drone footage, but you can have too much of a good thing. I was like, no, you can't. No, wait, wait. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just looking forward for the day that, uh, do you think you can go check a couple of the more elusive, less known spots in the area with the drone, get a little aerial footage and Probably, report back I, to us? I did send it off for a little flight today out. I was taking some shots just of the resort and I flew it out away from the resort mm -hmm. and I was sitting on the roof of the office and it went off and it went off and it went off. And then the trees got in the way. I go, oh. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> so I wasn't getting any feedback, so I couldn't see where the drone was and what it was doing. But luckily, actually, it, there's a button. I can hit it, and it will. It, and if it loses signal, it'll just return home. So That's I'd, pretty cool. I'd set its return, and the only thing you've got to make sure is that you tell it to return home very high up in the air because we're in the jungle and there's an awful lot of stuff for it to hit. Mm. But it's, it's programmed now. If it loses signal, it goes up to 300 feet flies back at 300 feet and then comes down so what so, so for listeners who are interested in getting a drone and, and using it for their own surfing or just for funding other stuff yeah. what's the name of the drone that we've got we have a dji phantom 3 professional and that's sort of like the standard one that you, the, probably the most common one it's like I, the gopro think, of drones yeah i think that is the gopro of drones so you we bought we bought the little practice drone yeah so the, before that we bought a, a hubson x4 uh, which is about 30 bucks on Amazon and is insanely good fun. And it, it's funny because you don't really need to necessarily fly one of these things around to fly the big drone because the big drones totally fly by wire. If you let go of all the controls, the thing just stops in midair and auto hovers, auto controls until you tell it to do something else. But the nice thing about flying that little drone is that the movement, you, it becomes quite instinctive. Okay, I want to move left or move right. The movement on the control is it you know if you play a computer game for long enough just the, you, your movements become very instinctive you stop thinking about moving the stick and pressing the button it's just well i'm moving left and moving right and i think that flying that little drone around definitely helped in that respect in that now if i want to fly left and right because i'm not just going up and taking pictures of static scenery i'm trying to track a moving surfer on a moving wave actually it's quite nice that i'm not thinking about which control does which so most of the other people who shoot from drones that I've spoken to tend to have one person doing the camera and one person flying the drone, but you're doing both at the same time. Yeah, well, so those are professional rigs. 
so that's it. if you if you take the next step up which is quite a significant step up in the price of the drone then you you have one person piloting the drone and one person piloting a, a full sort of 360 gimbal with the camera mounted to it so just to throw it out there how long are you going to predict both of you before harry crashes the drone into the sea oh i think harry's quite good i think it would take harry a lot longer than it would take me i did yeah, crash I would, it into i would the give sea. myself a week maybe I think it's very unlikely that I'll crash it into the sea, but I did manage uh, when I was taking off the other day, a little breath of wind caught it. And I just, I changed the battery just quite close to the gazebo. And as I went up, one of the props just clipped the corner of the gazebo. So onto the news then. There's been a few interesting things actually over the last week. Obviously the Hawaiian season has all started kicking off and various other bits and pieces. Anything caught your eyes, guys? Did you guys see Wade Carmichael surfing in Haleiwa last week? Oh, super impressive. Really, really nice. The, the Haleiwa contest can sometimes be a little bit of a letdown. The wave quality isn't always there. It, it kind of was this year. I, th- I think that it was, I, I really, really enjoyed watching it. I mean, it was, we had a couple of bigger days. We had some smaller days. But watching Wade Carmichael surf, he really looked very different from a lot of the WCT guys. And, and he showed that you can win a small wave contest with really powerful carving surfing rather yeah. than going to the air like we might expect, you know, that, the way that kind of contest would go in, the, in that smaller last day. Yeah, he, he earned a, a new fan in May. Yeah. I, I mean, we were talking about the, the creating speed by carving earlier. I oh, mean, just he's got the, that mastered. Yeah, watch the highlights of Wade Carmichael surfing at Haleiwa last week, and that's an amazing example of Another guy that I'm a big fan of that I haven't really heard much of in the last few years is Bruce Science, who's going to be surfing in pipe. Yeah, Kieran Perot gave him the injury pipe wildcard. Well, which is really weird because it's not an injury wildcard. It's already set. There are injury replacements on the WCT, and mm-hmm. they're set at the start of the year, and it's meant to be fixed. If someone goes out, there's a fixed list of who's meant to take it. So it's kind of a really weird, like they've, the WSL have broken all their own rules to, let, to give Bruce this thing because it's not a wildcard slot. So the WSL, there's been a, a huge social media campaign uh, over the last week or two to get Bruce into the event because it's obviously named in memory of his brother, late Andy Irons. And Kieran said it was not due to the social media campaign at all. But kind of judging on the size of it, I think it may have played a, a little part in it. Do you think that's the WSL saying we do not cave to social media? Like yeah, I think that might have been. We do not cave to terrorists. Kind yeah, of exactly. Bit. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, Matt Arney's done a, a good little write-up of it on the uh, Surf Simply website, which is well worth a read for everyone. But it is a weird situation because if they'd given him a wild card position, if they'd taken one of the wild card slots away from the sponsors or away from one of the guys that did well in the Volcom Pro then fair enough like it, it kind of makes sense but they haven't done that they've they've overridden because it should be i think is it alejo muniz yeah i believe so actually so is alejo take, in the is, is he in the event because he's been the injury wildcard for the last couple of events he's been the one injury replacement there's 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 a whole list of the guys that are meant to jump in and bruce has just skipped the queue yeah just to make it clear no one is objecting to bruce being in the pipe masters but people are objecting to the person who didn't get in and should have because they mm-hmm. were pushed out. Yeah. So there's a little bit of controversy about that. But yeah, Matt's done a lovely article about it for uh, Surf City magazine. I mean, personally, I am looking forward to seeing Bruce surf pipe. I really hope he does well. The last few contests he's been wildcarded into, he's kind of choked them, wasn't it? I, he was at Karamas in Bali. Yeah, it didn't have was much the last of an event. Pipe is his, uh, obviously home turf for him. And there's been some amazing footage of him surfing it last over the last couple of weeks. And he won the event in 2001. 
Yeah. Well, well that's that's quite a while ago. Yeah, that is a pretty long that's, time ago. I'm before pretty Asher sure was that Asher was, <laughs> yeah, was in uh, diapers still at that point. I was pretty young. How old were you in 2001? I was, uh, I was nine years old in 2001. Very, very blonde nine-year-old yeah. Asher. One of the big stories for this week, I guess, has been Surfstitch are continuing to buy up everything in surfing, hoping that they're not going to turn into a sort of evil empire. Yeah, they surf, are quite a con- conglomerate now. But yeah, you may remember last year we reported on Surfstitch buying up Magic Seaweed and... Stab Magazine. Stab Magazine. And they've now just purchased FCS for $23 million Australian dollars. I was a bit surprised with the $23 million valuation of FCS. I would have thought it would have been a lot more. I've got no idea what their books would look like. I mean, it's obviously a very, very well-known company within the mm-hmm. surf industry. I don't know how well-known it is outside the surf industry. Uh, I don't know if it's got the crossover of, you know, the billabongs and the quicksilvers that are well-known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think hardware is always going to be a much more limited market than, than soft goods. Yeah, soft goods you can sell to everybody. But, I mean, how many T-shirts do you own compared to how many pairs of fins? Probably pretty similar, but I might <laughs> be an exception <laughs> to the rule. <laughs> so, anyway, that, that, that'll be interesting to, to see how that plays out. On the subject of FCS, I've read a lot of people complaining about losing their FCS2 fins. I personally haven't lost any, and I couldn't be more happy with the system. I think it's the best new innovation in surfing in a while. Yeah, I'm. I don't understand it. I mean, it it takes a lot of force to, to knock pop one of those out. fins out. So I can only assume that someone's not installing them correctly, or that there are problems there around. Or they're landing their board backwards really hard. No, yeah, even, really hard. No, but even then, it wouldn't work. <laughs> Because it's it's got to be a vertical lift, yeah. so you, you've got to have a, a movement that's up and away from the surfboard, like sit, surfing backwards into a rock shouldn't knock it out. It's quite very satisfying karate chopping them out of the board with the side yeah. of your hand. Yeah. <laughs> Rue, you have a FCS2 longboard fin, don't you? I think I mentioned it on the show before, actually, but travelling around Indo with a single fin, well, travelling with a single fin is always a pain because, you know, you've got, you've got to use the screwdriver to get it in and out, and then you've got that little square plate that you have the to slide fish, the up The fish, the plate a little bit up and down. Yeah, and it never sits in, then it falls in sideways, and it's just a nightmare. And, of course, you always want to take the, the fin out of a single fin because it's so big and you can't pack the boards. And mm. you know, So being able to just pop that fin out really quickly and pop it back in again when I was traveling around with it was uh, absolutely fantastic. Made a big difference. Um, yeah, I, I really hope they bring out some more shapes of single fins, actually, a big center single fins. They do have a bit of a, a limited uh, range of single fins. Yeah, I'd like to get one that well, was they, a little bit drivier. They do here. Uh, FCS has always had a weird staggered release and they always release stuff in Australia first then in America and then into Europe and it's about a year between stuff being released into the Australian market before it arrives in Europe so how's the Australian market of single fins looking? they have four Hmm. they've they've gone down a similar route to what they did with the shortboard and and created a sort of essential collection so they've got quite a, a vertical fin quite a raked fin but yeah, right now in the US market, there's only one of them, and there's none in, in Europe, which is all a bit weird. The WSL also released the schedule for 2016. J-Bay is back on. There are a lot of people worried that it wouldn't be after the shark attack, but they're going back to J-Bay. Oh, just for the sake of getting it right, the shark incident. Shark incident, yes. Nah, yes. Good point. Uh, also a noticeable addition is North Point in West yes. Oz as a backup venue for Margaret River. Oh, I hope so. That would be really amazing. Hope so. Did you see the footage that they when they got uh, North Point really good at the Margaret River event last year? But yeah. obviously it wasn't an event site. Yeah, it was, it, it's just amazing. It was truly world class. That was a. There's a back in uh, Momentum. 
what's the second Momentum movie called? Momentum. Momentum two, two <laughs> under, under the influence. Under the influence, yeah. Momentum two under the influence. The Taj Burrow section in that, he's surfing huge North Point, and that really showcases just how sick that wave can be. Do you remember the Geordie Smith clip from this year where he gets the really long barrel and then does the biggest air? Was that anybody North had Point? Ever seen? Yeah, that was North Point. No way, I didn't know that. It doesn't look like North Point. Yeah, but yes, largely the uh, two tours, the men's and the women's, are pretty unchanged from this year. The women are going back to Fiji. What changes would you guys uh, make if you were the commissioners? Uh, we spoke about this last year, and there was a good article. I want to say it was in Surfing Magazine. I'll have to go back to, I think, almost episode two of the uh, podcast to, to, to revisit it. But someone came up with a very good idea of compressing the tour down to six months and having the, the QS run through one six-month period and the CT run through another six-month period. And it, 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 was a, it was really well put together. It was really well thought out little strategy to make sure that as a viewer, you got 12 months of continuous competition. But as the surfers, you weren't getting burnt out. It, they, they dropped a couple of events. So the, the CT and it was what used to be the primes that are now the, the 10,000 events. It, it, was, it was cool. I, I liked it. That would, that would be good as well to see a lot of those CT servers be able to spend time going away and doing movie projects. That would be a win-win. Yeah, I mean, that was a really interesting one. We started talking about it last week, and I guess we'll, we'll have to really wait until the end of um, Pipe to fully talk about who's going to end up on tour next year. But it is interesting. You look through the list of the guys that are likely to make it, and there's only two or three names that I really know. And it's because most of these guys that are slogging away on the WQS, they don't have time to go and make movie projects and do stuff like that it would be uh, give the the ct surfers and the qs surfers a chance to raise their profiles by yeah. which is really, really important for them professionally mm-hmm. by doing so they can get sponsorship and whatnot by doing movie projects and also it'd mean that the surfing fandom like us we could would be more engaged with the qs and what was going on because we half the year watching that yeah i absolutely. think it's a really interesting idea yeah, yeah. The, the one change that i would make that just leaps out at me is i wouldn't have all three australian events i wouldn't have both Bells and Margaret's, which, you know, can very often produce less than perfect waves. And I'd love to see Karamas back in there as well. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, because that's such a great, you know, like, viewer-friendly wave. And Bali's such a consistent location. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, on the contest side of things as well, they announced the lineup for the Eddie Cow, um, which we've obviously going into an El Nino year. Should be is, pretty active. Well, there is a very strong probability that Eddie will run. It hasn't run for five years now, but there's a very, very strong chance with it, it, it being a, a strong El Nino forecast that there will be an Eddie and that it could be quite an impressive one. A uh, name that jumped out to me at the list was the Icao family selected Mason Ho as their wild card. Yeah. So I would love to see Mason Ho get a shot at YMA Bay and the Eddie. And I would love to see Mason Ho's post-heat interview, given how wide-eyed and bushy-tailed he is after a normal surfing heat, after coming in from 30 <laughs> <Yeah>. Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, that could be quite exciting. It's always interesting with the, the, the Eddie Cow. for those of you that don't know, is a, an invitational event. It only runs if the waves at Wyoming Bay go over uh, what they call 25-foot Hawaiian, which is basically 40-foot, 50-foot faces. I mean, it's, it's pretty huge. Um, there's a list of invitees and there's also a large list of alternates because obviously given 48 hours notice to get to Hawaii and have all your boards there and compete in a, a big one day event. It's a pretty daunting task. Yeah, not, not everybody is necessarily able to make it. Um, so there's a, a big list of, of alternates as well. 
but because the because the event only runs in very strict conditions, I think it's only run eight times in the past 30 years. Eight times, including the first time, which ran at Sunset Beach. Yes, it I did. believe. Yeah, in 1985. Um, well, good surf knowledge. Good surf. Well, thank you very knowledge. much. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, so that's that's looking interesting. There's um, lots and lots of pretty well-known big wave surfers: Garrett McNamara, uh, Twiggy Baker, Greg Long, Ian Walsh, Jamie Mitchell, uh, and then lots of the CT guys as well: Jeremy Flores, John John Florence, Kelly Slater. Yeah, that's probably my favorite thing about the Eddie is it gives the chance to showcase a lot of talent that you don't normally see in big waves, like the Kelly Slaters or the, the John John Florences, Jeremy Flores, you said, is on the list. Yeah. Those are guys that are usually tied in uh, on the CT all year and don't have the opportunity to surf in those events. At the other end of the competition competitive schedule, there's a really fun event called the Slider Cup going to take place next week in the UK. If anyone is free, December 6th, Saturday, December 6th, down in Cornwall, the Slider Cup's taking place, which is an entirely finless competition. They have a stand-up, a bodyboard, and a body surf event. And it, it's a very all-encompassing event. It's not that this isn't a bunch of elite guys that are really, really hot at what they do. This, this is a, if, you, if you ever want to just take part in a fun surf contest, go down and, and have a play on this one because it's, it's good fun. Cornwall has a pretty, pretty hip alternate surf craft scene, huh? Well, in what it lacks in quality waves, it more than makes up for in diverse wave riding crafts. And hipsters. And hipsters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's cold enough that the um, plaid shirt and beard is is functional. Functional, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and Harry, I saw that Trace have teamed up with CI. So what's that all about? Yeah, that's quite exciting. So the the, the little Trace GPS accelerometer uh, box that I've been playing around with for a while, they've teamed up with Channel Islands, and I think it's the case they've they've got a new mount that sits in under the glass. So it's, it's pre-installed, and I think they're going to be sending a lot of the Channel Islands team riders out and actually using the data that's coming back from Trace to evaluate prototype models of the boards. I really like the idea of the Trace unit being installed inside the surfboard under the glass because although it's not really that invasive of kind of a tool on your board, it doesn't yeah. always look the coolest. It's, it's kind of like the surfboard equivalent of Google glasses. Yeah, <laughs> very functional, quite cool, but you don't, I don't know, you don't want to be wearing it all the time. I think I don't think it's the whole box is going in under the glass. I think it's the mount. You can actually see it. Uh, the boards Geordie Smith was riding at Haliva. Mm -hmm. You could see it in there. There's a there's a little black circle on the nose of the board that's indented into the uh, board. So you only have the one unit because the unit each unit's a couple of hundred bucks. So you have the one unit, but the mount is in the board so that when it goes in, it's a little okay. more flush. It seems like one of the problems that Trace has is that they don't have enough baseline data. So hopefully this will give them enough baseline data to really start developing their algorithm quite a lot now. I hope so. Well, interestingly, I got an email back from David Loskin, who is the CEO, and uh, he has agreed to do an interview with us. Oh, so that would be cool. really interesting. Hopefully in the next episode or so, we will be able to chat with him and ask him. Speaking of interviews, it reminds me that I mentioned back in August about how I was reading uh, Barbarian Days, and I've just been emailing with uh, William Finnegan, who uh, I'm going to do an interview with next week, I hope. if we can. We're just trying to figure out our schedules, but uh, that would be really interesting too. Yeah, very, very exciting. exciting. You're listening to the Surf Simply Podcast. Right, okay, on to our main feature this week. And this is a little bit of a, a surprise main feature, but we are going to do a listener email special. I think we should try and do these 
yeah, maybe maybe a couple of times a year we should do a listener email special because we've been getting more and more emails. And obviously, while we, we've been away on a couple of month break, we've had quite a lot of emails, which uh, between the three of us, I think we've, we've kind of replied to the guys individually. But mm-hmm. I think some of them are, are good questions that I think a lot of people will have been asking. So um, can I say how much I love our listenership? The type of questions that we get are so shamelessly technical and uh, pedantic in nature. Yeah, I love it. I, I love it. I like that is exactly what aspects of surfing that I really enjoy. Yes. So thank you to everyone that sent in the emails and sorry to the people who's we, we aren't going to read out. Do you want to kick us off, Ash? I'll read them. Our first email is going to be from Fernando Carvalho. Uh, how's it going, Fernando? And Fernando says, wanted to pick your brain for a second, if you allow me to. Wanted to make sure I'm not actively developing a bad habit. I've been working on my pop-up for 18 months now. My front right foot lands too close to the rail. I can quickly correct it on a long or fun board, but it kills me when trying to ride a new 6'2 shortboard I got, uh, which is narrower and a lot less stable. I hadn't caught a wave in three sessions, so I adapted my pop-up. Instead of popping up in a single burst that inevitably led to bad front foot placement and not making it, I started moving my back left leg onto the traction pad at the same time as my hand go into that chicken wing position, and then pop up using my back leg's assistance. In this way, I pop up with my front foot right 80% of the time, uh, which is a pretty massive difference. I timed it using a GoPro. It's 0.1 seconds slower, but the outcome difference is 80% success rather than zero. Looks like a no-brainer to me. But before I hardwire this new shortboard pop up in my mind, I wanted to check with you. Is this a bad habit that's going to hit me later on? So I thought this was a really interesting question because it's something that actually comes up a lot. And what Fernando is really saying is, is it okay to pop up with your back foot first and then step through with your front foot, which is something I've noticed a lot of surf schools teach when they're first teaching people how to get up. When you're coming up to your feet on an unbroken wave, you want to keep your weight forward the whole time. You want to have the nose of the board as low to the front of the wave as you possibly can. You can get away with having the weight go back for a moment when you're taking off on a bigger board in less critical waves. But if you continue that in steeper, faster waves, you'll find yourself either coming off the back of the wave or when you drop into the wave, always having to go over sort of with the lip and going all the way down to the bottom. Now, when you're surfing waves that are barreling right off the takeoff, it's really important to be able to keep your weight forward so that you get over that ledge and then can immediately put the board on rail and start generating down the line speed without ever dropping below that halfway point of the wave. If you get up in the way that Fernando's um, proposing, so you, you got back foot and then front foot, it's really common that the weight goes onto that back foot just for a tiniest fraction of a second and that can really stall the board up in the lip. So it's fine on, on slower, softer waves, but yes, it is going to come back to haunt you in steeper, faster waves. Yeah, because it, it is possible to do that two-step method without putting any weight on the back foot whatsoever and it, it, it is okay to use there are a couple of the guys on the ct that stand up using that two-step method but they don't put any weight whatsoever on that back foot it's just mm-hmm. simply there to create a little bit of leverage for the for the front foot to come through and i think that's the real danger that that, that people use so when th- there are occasions where we do coach people into using that two-step method but it's always we have to do it quite carefully to make sure that they're keeping the weight on the hands until the front foot's in position and then pushing up with the front foot and equally you can be a surfer who's coming up bringing your front foot through but accidentally 
putting your weight back as you stand up. I mean, the two things don't always correlate, but they just do quite often. So when I'm teaching people how to tube ride, one of the biggest problems that they all have is exactly that. It's coming up to your feet and just the nose of the board goes up and you stall the board for a moment, just for a fraction of a second in the lip as you're coming to your feet. Mm -hmm. And that means that you then sometimes lose the wave. But as I say, more commonly, you just end up dropping all the way down to the bottom of the wave when you do eventually go over that ledge and the barrel is then racing off ahead of you and you're stuck in the white water. And you can think, oh, this beach break keeps closing out. Whereas actually, you could be surfing potentially the best barreling waves of your life. Yeah. I mean, I know that for all of us three is we've got more and more comfortable in waves that barrel right off the takeoff. Uh, you know, that's, that's been a challenge that we've all had to overcome. Oh, absolutely. So it's not 100% wrong, Fernando, but that is the potential fit pitfall and, and what you want to be careful of. The next email came in from Jason Connor, and actually he was addressing your point, Rude, just before we went on a break where you were asking for any recommendations of cameras. He says, I listened to the last podcast and heard you're in the hunt for a camera that fits between the GoPro and SLR ends of the spectrum. I have a Sony A6000, which I can't recommend highly enough. Uh, the autofocus is unbelievable, which makes it great for sports photography and filming. And it shoots at 11 frames per second, so it's brilliant for tracking moving subjects. I haven't used it in the water, but I believe the housings are pretty affordable. And Chris Burkhardt is a big fan. And I believe that you followed up on that little recommendation as well, Rune. Well, I actually went out and bought a Sony A7S. I mean, I've been having a lot of fun with it, but I don't think that that Sony A7S is the right uh, camera to be using in the water. The, uh, the A6000 does look like a fantastic camera, and uh, I didn't get one of those, but uh, I do actually have to pop back to the States next week, so I might pick one up when I go over there. Ah. Okay. I do like getting new toys. So thanks very much, Jason. I'll, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to go and spend the afternoon doing a bit of Googling on it. <laughs> uh, San Kim wrote in saying, there's something I've wondered about and you might find interesting enough to dig into as well. Kicking while paddling. I see a ton of surfers, experienced or otherwise, do this, and when I've tried to do research on it, I've gotten some mixed results. The first explanation is it gets you moving faster. I've heard this simplistic explanation a couple times, but mostly online discussions seem to oppose the theory, explaining that the added drag and turbulence negate any propelling effects. If we lead them to the second explanation, it shifts your center of gravity and balance of the board. That is, even if it may not actually propel you forward, the kicking motion lifts the tail and gets you moving down the face faster, which allows you to catch waves that you may have not otherwise caught. A lot of surfers in forums uh, slash Reddit seem to buy this explanation, but I'm not so sure I do. First of all, it seems to me that you can achieve the same effect simply by lifting or bending your legs up, which shifts your center of gravity towards the nose. Plus, this way you don't get the drag or turbulence that you get from kicking and the back-to-back side-to-side rocking of the board that would slow you down. To me, the whole kicking theme seems like a big old placebo, one which even the pros buy into. Could you help clear this up? It's an interesting one, isn't it? So I actually had a good back and forth with San and we were playing around with a few thoughts. The best I could find uh, on the speed thing, so explanation number one on the speed, is that with a shortboard where you really can get your legs into the water and a solid kick, it might produce maybe 0.4 of a mile per hour. There was an Australian study where they reckoned that kicking, kicking the legs was doing about a 0.4, maybe kilometers an hour, I think they were working in. Uh, increase in speed so there was a little bit but that was quite specifically where you could get you know shortboard where you could get your whole legs in 
And I mean, that 0.4 miles an hour increase in speed is significant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, the paddle speed uh, generally is around uh, sort of five to seven kilometers an hour. So you know, 0.4 is still, is still something worth playing with. The second explanation is much harder uh, to get any real kind of feel for. Uh, I don't think that it's going to um, necessarily shift the center of gravity and the balance, but I have seen actually the idea is that that kicking produces a little lift to try and get the tail a little higher up out of the water and push the nose downwards. So you're actually kicking to, to pivot the board almost. Which kind of goes back to Fernando's email that we were talking about before. Again, the real point of of, of what you're trying to do when you're taking off on an unbroken wave is keep the nose of the board as low as you possibly can to the water throughout paddling, whether it's with or without kicking. And then as you make that tr- transition to standing up, that, that nose wants to be as low to the water as you can, like the front bumper of a Formula One car against the tarmac. Absolutely. Well, so as a really interesting aside, and I, this may be a few months off before we get any kind of results back, but I've been having a very interesting uh, back and forth with some of the guys at the physics department at uh, UCSD, the University of California, uh, San Diego campus. I'm so stoked that they like the show. What a cool group to (laughs) reach out to us. I feel like we aimed to appeal right off the bat to a very small niche audience that's kind of a crossover between interested in science and engineering and who's also so interested in surfing it's like a venn diagram with just a tiny crossover and we kind of nailed I, the crossover and i think yeah we just nailed the elite of the of the of the venn diagram well, i hope so so uh, derek brown and kevin moore um hello guys and thank you very much for listening and thank you very much for for the back and forth that i've had with you guys which i'm not going to read out now because it was quite long and involved a lot of diagrams uh but i'm really looking forward to some of the stuff uh and we were talking about the process of a surfboard going from displacement mode to being picked up by the wave to starting to plane at which point it becomes stable enough for you to stand up on and what factors influence that and I'm quite excited to see what we get out of that. So it's like a dream come true. It's amazing. It's, I've really enjoyed following your back and forth with them, actually. So just, just to make that clear to listeners that aren't quite sure what Harry just said, when you're paddling the board, you're essentially pushing it through the water. And then when the board gets to a certain speed, pretty much usually when you stand up on it, you're no longer going through the water. It's then up on the surface going over the top of the water. So it's two very different processes. So mm-hmm. you've been talking with them about how that process works. Uh, so the next question is kind of a fun one. So bear bear with me with this one listeners so i hope i'm getting your name right here but uh greg smallers i apologize greg um <laughs> let's just assume t- we got it wrong and apologize we'll assume we got it wrong and apologize uh greg asked uh should i surf todas santos killers okay so the reason i ask is because i've gotten mixed reviews on whether or not it's a good idea here's why i'm a beginner been surfing a little over a year but I've read that Todas does break on smaller days and of course that's when I would go love to hear some chat about some of those spots now my buddies were saying it would take it would be like me going out at Mavericks but I'm not sure they're correct Mavericks only breaks on huge swells which doesn't seem to be the case with Todas and there are other breaks around which are much smaller so here's the interesting thing Todos Santos, for those of you guys that don't know, the famous Todos Santos is a break just south of the American border in Mexico. It's a huge, huge, big wave that breaks off a deserted island in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. There is also another Todos Santos, which is quite a nice town all the way down at the southern tip of Baja, which has very user-friendly beginner breaks. Uh, And so this threw me for a little while. I had to spend a little while researching it. But yeah... 
Todos Santos, the town, looks like it's a great place to go and learn to surf. Um, there's, there's other breaks to the north and south of it that are very, very user-friendly. For the most part, it looks like it's a pretty nice place. The town looks pretty, pretty civilized and pretty nice. Todos Santos... The island. The island. Seems uh, like just about the worst place in the world. Yeah, it's a, a, a deep water trench leading into a, this sort of slab of rock that produces this macking great big wave. It really doesn't break until it gets about 15 to 20 foot on the face. So probably not the best place to go. Yeah. And the other waves around there, chickens and urchins are also pretty, uh, pretty volatile, like really rough bottom. And that whole island's known to blow out at around 8 a.m. in the morning which right. is a pretty big issue for big wave surfers there. Uh, you can only surf it kind of at the first light. So I would imagine uh, for a, kind of an entry-level surfer where repetition is going to be really key to learning, maybe a spot that only has two hours of surfable window a day might not be the best place. Absolutely. Um, on the subject of learning to surf, um, Clark Henderson uh, says, you guys have talked about levels of surfer, such as level one or level two. Uh, could you please explain the distinctions between these levels? So... One of the hard things that we found when people were coming along to do surf coaching courses with us was trying to understand from them where they're at. And, you know, what you'll commonly see is beginner, intermediate, advanced. Now, people will describe themselves as intermediate if they've done a few days of lessons during which they were beginners. They would then class themselves as an intermediate. Uh, I would class myself as an intermediate surfer. I've been surfing for about 25 years. I'm not a world champion. I'm not a world title contender who are the people I would think of as the advanced surfers. So an intermediate surfer can be anywhere in this huge, huge spectrum mm -hmm, between yeah. done it once to almost professional. So, you know, we needed to give people better language. And, and we have this on our website. In fact, if you type into Google, what level surfer am I? I think our, our page comes up top or maybe number two. Or just check the links on the show notes for this episode. The idea is that we split people's ability into four levels because people within those levels can work together in a group and be coached together. People who are not within the same level, it's very difficult to coach them. So a level one surfer is surfing in the white water. And most surf schools traditionally use the white water as a way of standing up and then you, you go out and be on the surf. We actually use it very differently at Surf Simply. One of the big challenges that we find when we're coaching is that people are too precious with their waves. You know, they come all the way down here to Costa Rica. We want them to do a cutback. They want to learn how to do a cutback, but they've paddled all the way out there. They've got the wave. They're going down the line. And the last thing they want to do is something which might make them fall off. So when we're trying to teach them about the body mechanics of doing a cutback, we bring them back into the white water and we have people stepping back to the side, getting their body mechanics right. And they can do 20, 30, 40 turns in half an hour so that when they go out the back, they've then got the body mechanics down. So level one surfing encompasses all of that. And it isn't really something that you move away from. Even when you're quite advanced, it can still be useful to go back to it. Level two surfing is when you're out the back in unbroken waves. But the main focus that you're working on is actually just trying to catch the wave. So it's mostly agility in the water and your ability to predict waves and, and get over to them. With level two surfing, you really want your coach in the water next to you, helping you with that process. Level three surfing, by contrast, you're comfortable catching waves on your own and you're really working on the first two maneuvers on the face, which is floaters and cutbacks, those horizontal maneuvers, both of them, where either the, you're outrunning the wave or the wave's outrunning you. The big difference between level two and three is that with level two, you want your coach in the water next to you, whereas with level three, you want your coach on the beach with a video camera and that's why we split them up. Mm -hmm. It might be that on a smaller day, you're a level three surfer and if the surf gets up into the six eight foot range now you're 
back to a level two surfer again because you want your coach in the water with you. So these levels are slightly fluid. A level four surfer, again, your coach is on the beach with a video camera. That's where all the useful coaching is being done. Um, but rather than just working on the horizontal maneuvers, you're also working on vertical maneuvers. So you're working on roundhouse cutbacks, 12 o'clock drills and snaps off the lip. Yeah, I always, I always said that line between sort of level three and level four is when we're starting to, rather than working on one maneuver per wave, it's where we're starting to link multiple maneuvers on the open face of the wave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think another thing that worth bearing in mind is that each one of those levels, level one in the white water, two catching unbroken waves, three horizontal maneuvers, and four the vertical maneuvers and the flow, the linking together of maneuvers, each one of those levels is almost an order of magnitude bigger than the preceding one. You know, yeah, it's like you, the Richter scale. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like the Richter scale. Yeah, you Really easy to move from one to two, but the two to three progression is harder, and then the three to four is exponentially harder than yeah, the, the exactly. previous. Yeah, exactly. So, y you know, you might be working on level one stuff for, let's say, a week, level two stuff for a month, level three stuff for a year, level four stuff for a decade. That yeah. would be a, a, just a ballpark kind of a good way of thinking about it. One of our old clients, Justin Murphy, uh, got in contact. He, hey, Justin. Yeah, hey, Justin. Yeah, good to hear from you, Justin. He had his board trashed John John style uh, on the way home from the French expedition, which was rather unfortunate. Oh, which was pretty heartbreaking. And he wrote to us saying he's done a, you know, a ton of looking into all the other products, uh, some of the ones that I was talking about last week, and uh, was finding the same problems that I saw, which was that they were pretty heavy and, and not that functional so if, if you missed the last episode listeners we were just talking about hard cases for traveling with surfboards yeah and so he says uh, my newest idea is to add some structure to a soft board bag uh, i figure the big danger points are the nose and the tail where the rocker means the board can't support weight without breaking obviously there are other risks such as railings, but i figured soft padding might be able to address these to protect the nose and the tail, I had two plastic cases made at a local plastic store out of cheap PVC material, each of which look a little like a garbage can, but is shaped to cover the nose and the tails of the boards inside the soft bag. The cases definitely add some weight, but less than a full plastic case, and there's enough space that I can still have padding on the rails, nose, tail, etc. for any grinding inside the cases. I've sent you a few pictures, which uh, I'll put up on the show notes so everybody else can see uh, Justin's ingenuity. I um, love how in ingenious our listenership is. Yeah. Yeah, he just had a problem and he just went for it. Yeah. I, will, I will add in Justin's uh, apologies for the poor lighting. The garage was dark when I took the pictures. <laughs> Shame on us for just waiting for someone in to, to produce it when we could have just gone out and made it ourselves like Justin. Yeah, yeah. there we go. So yeah, Justin with a, a good idea, these sort of uh, plastic inserts to put into a softboard bag to try and protect his board. The final one uh, that we got the other day, and I haven't done this at all. William Grello, William Grio, again, William, I apologize if I butchered your name. Uh, pronunciation is not my strong point. But he says, uh, I'm a new fan of the show. Uh, I heard you guys discussing the virtual reality surfing video of CJ Hobgood in Tahiti, which you posted in the show notes. I was wondering whether you guys have heard of Google Cardboard. It's a simple viewer for your phone, which, when combined with certain videos, including this one, creates a stereoscopic image with a 360-degree range, basically virtual reality on the cheap. You can order the viewer... Uh, which is literally made from folded cardboard from Amazon or from tons of third-party sellers on eBay. I got mine for about five bucks and it works great. When I heard your description of the vid, I looked it up on the 360 video channel on YouTube as soon as I got home and immediately went into the barrel, virtually anyway. It sounds really cool. I did a little it bit of amazing. It's, it's basically it's this folded cardboard and the only thing you've got to do that's a bit clever, it's got two plastic lenses on it 
and it then runs an app on your phone which splits the video feed into two and so you, you, you have this sort of folded bit of cardboard with two lenses in front of your head which supports the phone right in front of your eyes and then the phone is feeling you turn your head up, down, left and right and moving within the video. Oh, I see, I see. It's really cool. I was wondering why, what was the significance of it being made of cardboard and I assumed it was some sort of like wireless Bluetooth headset that connects to your phone, but it's, no, 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 your, your no. phone is the headset. Your phone is the headset, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm oh, going to we're gonna cool. have to get some of that. Well, this is yep. it. If, now that you are suddenly having to jet off back to the States, I looks, think... I think looks like we're getting three. Yeah. I wonder what, I wonder what the... <laughs> I mean, you know how we spend a lot of time with uh, people that we're coaching, videoing waves when they're out in the water, and then we'll play the waves back on the TV and we'll say to them, okay, what do you think this wave is going to do? We're trying to teach people about how to predict waves and therefore trying to inform them about where they should be in the water in order to be in the right place to catch waves yeah. and maximize the, the face time on them. Imagine how well we could do that with a scenario where you can actually put on a virtual headset. Wouldn't it be amazing? Around. Yeah. I think oh, there's that so much um, that's so much potential. potential. Yeah. That's you incredible. On the website for Google Cardboard, they have the rigs that you need to record the footage. And it, it, it's a sort of 10 GoPros all bolted together in a little circle that you can then put a pole in the middle of. And you, you basically just go out exactly as you do with your GoPro and a pole. It's just 10 GoPros and a pole. And that, that then films the footage that goes to make these virtual reality. Okay, I'm going to be spending a little bit of time on Amazon. <laughs> We've obviously had a ton more emails than this, um, and we haven't had time to go through them all. But hopefully we'll get a chance later in the uh, season to touch on some of those emails individually or have another uh, listener feedback. So, guys, if you do have any questions for us, please, 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 we love getting your emails. So do send them through to us. Podcast at surfsimply.com will get us. Just finally then, our standard what to watch. The last two weeks, there's been some pretty cool little movies coming out. Obviously, the first one to make a note of is uh, John John's movie coming out on Tuesday. The View from a Blue Moon. I'm looking forward to seeing that. We'll, we'll, we'll watch that next week it comes out, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it's out on Tuesday. So we have, we'll have a viewing party here, and then we'll do a review of it. I'll break in the new sofas. Yeah. Highly so, recommend you guys do the same. Yeah, I, I was listening to someone that was at the premiere for that, talking about it the other day. It sounds pretty intense. Pretty yeah, I'm cool. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Yeah. Are we going to do a full movie review of it next episode? I think we could do Absolutely. a full movie review of it and compare it to Psychic Migration, yeah, because we you guys were frothing on, and I still actually haven't had a chance to sit down and watch it. It's I a think great movie. Watch that as well. This is, uh, we mentioned this last time. I think. But, yeah, we did. But yeah, we'll just check out the Ryan Birch twin fin section in the middle. Yeah, I don't want to give away my froth level too much, but I have watched that section every day since it's come out. <laughs> <laughs> just to reveal the surf-stoked grom in me. Highly recommend it, guys. The uh, the movie actually that I've been I've watched and, and really, really enjoyed, it does take a bit of getting into it. It's quite dry, but it's Surfline. They did one a while back with world champions. They did a round table discussion with a whole bunch of shapers talking about surfboards and the surfboard industry. And they had some of the real A-list shapers. They had Matt Biolas from Lost. They had Rusty. They had Britt Merrick, Al Merrick's son, who now runs Channel Islands. Mm -hmm. Super, super interesting to, to hear what those guys were saying about the industry and and shaping. I found that very, very interesting, particularly some of their comments about how the more people have gotten to understand volume as a as a metric for surfboards that a lot of people have understood that but not its consequences for the other metrics and so they'll come in and they'll order a board with custom dimensions and a custom volume 
that doesn't add up. You know, they'll, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll want the board. Okay, I want the stock board, same volume, but I want it half an inch narrower. Well, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't work. <laughs> it sounded quite interesting. Anyway, it, it, it's a little dry. It's half an hour long, but it's really, really worth uh, worth watching. Um, so I recently watched the Pharaohs movie, yeah. and pretty much beautiful footage. It's uh, taken of the Faroe Islands, which is a hundred miles west of Norway, I think. Yeah, that's is that uh, Chris Burkhart? Yeah, again? it was a Chris Burkhart trip last fall, and one of my really good friends, Justin Quintal, was on the trip, and they got some. They didn't get really perfect waves but they did score a couple pretty fun days awesome. and uh yeah the footage came out amazing so i think you guys would would really enjoy it fantastic stuff the final one that i definitely think was worth watching nate yeomans has a documentary a sort of a personal bio movie it's called innate really interesting story he was one of the guys that qualified for the world tour in 2010 and then got booted off in the mid-season cut that they had that year, which was also when Bobby Martinez went on his massive rant and all the rest of it. Um, it's a bit of a strange year, 2010. Yeah, well, he, and, and talking to him about that, you know, th- that was eight years of solid, hard investment of money and time to try and get himself onto the CT. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, unsurprisingly, the first couple of events were a little tough, but he had a good showing at J-Bay and then got to, I think it was Chopu, and it, he was sitting there and they announced this mid-season cut. He's like, well, I've got to get to the quarters or the semis, or I'm off the tour. Yeah. First time he surfed a contest at Chopu. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen. He got booted off the tour. And just talking about him building back up, he won the Cold Water Classic in 2014. And the prize for that was sponsorship. Cause he'd with been O'Neill. With O'Neill. And so this documentary has been produced by O'Neill and is basically following him through the 2015 season where he's trying to uh, have another crack at the QS and trying to get back on tour. It's it's well worth a watch. I, I enjoyed it. Interesting guy, like very blue-collar, hard-working pro surfer. I really enjoy the movies where you actually get a little bit of insight into what a lot of these guys do. I've, you know, I've got a few friends at various levels who are pro surfers, and it's a tough gig. Yeah. I mean, it really is. There's a short window, and you have to carve out a niche for yourself, whether it's as a competitor or as someone that can essentially move product off a shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I enjoy the the movies where that comes across. I was watching a movie the other day. It's just like a like a fifteen minute movie following Ian Walsh as he was going around Japan, failing to find waves. Yeah. And and it was just you know it made you realise that it's not just these guys going out and it's all really easy and everything's laid on for them and they always are getting fantastic waves, which you would think from watching movies like Psychic Migrations, it is. But it, it is. is the case. Very enjoyable. Okay. I'm off to buy a lot of cardboard to make <laughs> my virtual goggles. All right. Well, that's, yeah, that is it for this week, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed the show. Do check out the show notes at surfsimply.com slash podcast. You can find links to everything we've spoken about, all the little movies we've mentioned and all of those fun and exciting things. But for now, from all of us, I hope you guys have a nice couple of weeks and we'll be back. See you in two weeks, guys. Yeah. See you in two weeks. We love you. Bye. 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 That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.